helping community leaders grow financially resilient, resource-conscious, and people-friendly cities is the Go Cultivate podcast, brought to you by Verdunity. Hey guys, this is Kevin. Welcome back to the Go Cultivate podcast. Hope you guys are staying safe and well out there with this COVID mess continuing to go on. Today's guest on the podcast is Becky Gray. She is the director of housing for Chafee County, Colorado. About, I want to say last October, Monty Anderson and I went out there and did a a two-day workshop uh, with her as part of a a broader, it was a grant-funded community education series on community health. And it's a real, um, it's a fascinating approach that Becky's taking to, to integrate. She had us out there talking about fiscal sustainability and incremental development, uh, but she was also pulling in missing middle housing, uh, conservation subdivision design, a number of different kind of cool elements that, that we get into with, with our work here at Verdunity. But I haven't really seen too many people connect all of these different aspects together through the lens of community health the way that Becky has. So I wanted to check back in with her and see how the whole education program has gone. They're, they're reaching the end of the, the grant, putting their final report and kind of close out event together. Uh, so I wanted to have her on and, and talk about her experience with the workshop and, and how all that is going. We also get into most of the conversation is, is talking about housing. Before she went to Chafee County, she worked in the Midwestern community of Pittsburgh, Kansas, and so her perspective is kind of interesting going, you know, tackling housing in two different kind of ends of the affordable housing spectrum uh, and just development patterns that, that you have from a kind of a, a recreational tourism retiree kind of environment of Chafee County to the uh, the environment of Pittsburgh, Kansas. It's more of a residential community. So uh, without further ado, here is my interview with Becky Gray. Enjoy. So, uh, Becky, welcome to the Go Cultivate podcast. Kevin, thank you so much for inviting me here. I'm glad you could come on. It's It's been a while since we've seen each other. We're actually doing this over a, a video call. So I, I have a lot of questions to ask you and, and get into. And we're, we're going to be talking about housing and education and, and a little bit on on the workshops, um, the workshop that Monty and I did out there for you. But Let's just start, um, give our listeners a little bit of background about you and how you to Chafee County, Colorado. Sure. And actually, I'll add one more um, stop along that way because I started in Colorado. I was raised on the Front Range in Boulder County, right outside of Niwot, Colorado. Um, and in the early 90s, when um, I was the last kid to leave the house, my parents sold what they had there because the community was uh, growing so quickly and changing so fastly. Um, They cashed out of Colorado and they moved to um, Northeast Oklahoma where land was much cheaper and and they were able to realize some of their dreams. That left me, um, a young, uneducated person uh, in Colorado without an income and I couldn't afford to live here. Um, So long story short. We're going to come back to that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I couldn't afford to live in the hometown that I grew up in. Um, So long story short, I went to Northeast Oklahoma. Um, to to get an education and have some affordable housing with my family and then ended up migrating slightly north to the town of Pittsburgh, Kansas, which is in the southeast corner of Kansas in Crawford County or yeah, in Crawford County. 
and um, finished my master's degree there in technical and professional writing, focusing on writing for the government. Um, what I didn't tell you when I was in Oklahoma is that I started working in data collection, data analysis around homeless services and found that I had a, um, a very uh, strong connection with housing, housing affordability and housing access and realized that um, to be effective in that world, it made more sense for my little activist soul to go inside the government and work on policy changes that would be more long-term impactful than, um, than outdoor activism. So, so after I um, finished my master's degree in Pittsburgh, Kansas at Pittsburgh State University, home of the gorillas, I, um, I started working for a community action agency, which is a nonprofit dedicated to addressing the causes and effects of poverty. And we served 12 counties in Southeast Kansas. So you could have um, put the state of Delaware in our service area. And we focused on um, housing, transportation, early childhood education, and family self-sufficiency. So I really started learning a lot about federal housing programs outside of homelessness um, at that position. That was for Southeast Kansas Community Action how, Program. How, how, does the, how does the early childhood education connect to housing? Oh, that's an excellent question. I appreciate that very much. The early childhood education programs we were operating through the Southeast Kansas Community Action Program were Head Start and Early Head Start. And in rural communities like the ones we were serving, most of those early childhood education services were at home. We didn't have classrooms where people brought their kids. We had teachers that would go to the homes of the children and engage their parents. Yeah. And so it was really kind of a two-generation approach towards early childhood, and it didn't only focus on child development, but also focused on family self-sufficiency, which is where the housing really intersects. Yeah, it's a great okay. question. So I, um, when I left my position at the um, Community Action Agency, it was to take on the position of housing director at the city of Pittsburgh, Kansas. Um, the city's about five square miles, roughly 20,000 people and growing, home of a university. It has a very diverse um, economic structure with several different large manufacturing facilities there, and then um, a very strong entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of um, homegrown economic um, economic activities there. So while I was there, I was operating... Um, uh, Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program, which is rental assistance, um, tenant-based rental assistance. So most of, the, most of what we were doing there was paying for rent. Um, but in addition to that, we started a land bank um, so that we could start acquiring land and then um, working with local builders to um, get the type of housing that we needed in that community. I also started what is referred to in... Um, Kansas as a rural housing incentive district. So these are um, parcels of land that are adopted into a district that then allows um, developers to pay for the infrastructure to create rural housing. But there's a special assessment placed on those parcels that reimburses those developers for the infrastructure cost over right. time. Yeah. So that was kind of fun. Um, and I feel like there's other things I've forgotten, but, <laughs> but, but it was wonderful. Um, Pittsburgh, Kansas is a great, really progressive 
yet conservative. So when I say progressive, I mean um, cooperative, excellent leadership, inclusive. When I say conservative, I mean the decisions are all very fiscally responsible and they think long term um, and just a really fun community. And we had a great relationship between the city and the university. There's an organization called the International Town Gown Council, and we were part of that and um, and really did some um, the leadership there really was able to bring through some very creative and innovative approaches to community development. Um, However, in the meantime, I had a son who moved back to Colorado and he sent me a job description and said, hey, mom, uh, there's this job in Chafee County that looks like what you do. You should check it out. And I did. And uh, my family and I kind of tossed around the idea of should we move? Should we not move? And we decided to explore the opportunity until it made sense to quit exploring it. And um, and I'm here <laughs> I'm still exploring. Pretty exciting. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about Chafee County. For those who don't know, you're um, you're sitting there in Salida. I am. Um, which is a pretty awesome place um, and, and has some I mean, we'll, we'll get into some of the challenges. You know, when when we talk housing and affordable housing, a lot of people think one end of the spectrum. Um, you guys have a, a very different challenge um, there. But give uh, give us a sense of, of Chafee County. You bet. You bet. Chafee County is um, almost literally in the center of Colorado. So we are about three hours southwest of Denver, um, two, two and a half hours straight west of Colorado Springs and uh, Pueblo, just to give people an idea of where yeah, we are. It's not the easiest place to get to. No, it's like <laughs> planes and automobiles to get out here. But once you're here, you're so glad. Oh, yeah. It's just about a thousand square miles in total. What is interesting about Chafee County, though, is that uh, roughly 80%, a little bit over 80% of the land mass in Chafee County is owned by the public. So it's either National Forest, Bureau of Land Management, state trust lands, um, state uh, recreation lands, et cetera. So we only have 20% of our land mass um, available in the, the private market. Um, there's roughly 20,000 people here and growing. Um, we have three distinct municipalities, so the towns of Buena Vista, Pancha Springs, and Salida, and then one county government. We have yeah. the Arkansas River throws through the middle of the valley. Um, we're surrounded by uh, mountains. On the west side, there's more 14,000-foot peaks than there are anywhere else in Colorado. And therefore, we have a lot of outdoor recreation um, the Arkansas River is excellent whitewater rafting. I just went this last Sunday down Browns Canyon National Monument. Um, uh, mountain biking is a very big attraction here, as well as hiking, fly fishing. And then on the western side of our county, we have uh, one of the last independent ski slopes in Colorado, Monarch Mountain. And so we uh, attract a lot of um, a lot of people here to recreate. So. So you're describing what is a very beautiful place. Um, it's, um, you know, you talk about the nature and, and that part of it, but you also have a pretty amazing little downtown there in, in Salida. Actually, all of them, all three of those communities are, are you said it, they're unique, um, but they are, you know, there's some similarities too. But with, um, with a special place like that comes a, 
demand <laughs> to be there. Um, and so uh, why don't you take that and run with it? What, is, what does that mean for, for housing costs and people wanting to, yeah. um, to live there? Yeah, well, what I just described to you was um, a recreation outdoor tourism economy. And when I go back to my childhood, um, this is the county we would come to to trade bulls or hunt elk. This was a very, very rural community. Um, the, you know, the original inhabitants were the Ute Indians. And shortly after that, I'm certain um, mining came in and, and pushed the Native Americans out. And so it was a mining community. And there are still um, some of our uh, more seasoned residents that feel that this is a mining community still, even though we haven't been mining here for decades. Um, it, it also transitioned slowly then into agriculture. So there's um, beautiful swaths. I mentioned the Arkansas River. There's lots of beautiful swaths of uh, rangeland and hay fields. And so the ranchers historically have taken their animals during the winter to that public land I mentioned, and they graze on the Bureau of Land Management. And then during the winters, they bring, bring them back um, to the valley floor and feed them hay. If you pay attention to agriculture and ranching, you might realize that um, every generation becomes a little bit less interested in being the rancher or the farmer. And so because of that, and because of our proximity to the Front Range, to Denver and Colorado Springs, and because of an increase in our internet capacity, we have started seeing, I, I think it's safe to say over the last 15 years or so, um, some of that agricultural land be subdivided into housing. And the new residents that are coming into those housing uh, predominantly are retirees or people about to retire coming from um, a more urban area um, that are able to purchase a home as an investment, maybe keep it as a second home and use it as a short-term rental while they're finishing that transition, and then move here to enjoy all that beauty I described after their retirement. Um, in addition, again, because of the close proximity to the Front Range and all of the outdoor recreation amenities we have, there's been a a, a transition of the housing units that have been here historically um, are, are turning into short-term rentals at an alarming rate from my perspective. Um, our, our rents have increased, I think, 125% since, yeah, since uh, 2009. Um, so within, you know, a decade, they've gone up quite a bit. And, and the short-term overnight rents um, are a lot more lucrative than even the long-term rents. So during some of our festival weekends, uh, of which there are many, you can see short-term rentals bringing close to $600 a night. Um, and therefore, owners, of course, will take that opportunity as opposed to uh, renting at an affordable rate for a long-term. So that transition in demographics um, isn't stopping. It's actually increasing. We're seeing more subdividing and more building here than um, in the past. And it's my observation that the complexity and the speed at which those subdivisions and those developments are occurring has surpassed our community's ability to manage that growth in an, in an equitable way. 
So it was it was quite an interesting seat that I stepped into when I when I took this position. I didn't realize it was going to be so complex. Well, yeah, and I know. Oh, are you hearing an echo on your side? Echo on your side. I do not. I'm hearing me come through like twice. Oh, there it went. It's not there anymore. That's weird. Okay. Um, yeah. So I know when when we were there, it was interesting that. Um, you know, we visited a, a few of those those neighborhoods. I don't remember the the name of the kind of the new urbanist one that that has all the the buzz, but it was like a ghost town. There was nobody there, but you could also like you could picture it during kind of one of the prime seasons as being packed with the events and That's right. and everything. So there's kind of a you know there's a placemaking aspect to it too, I guess. Of you know what is what does the area look like when it's loaded for the you know prime season and everybody's there versus what does it look like when all those rentals you know go go away um you know that's that's one thing i think to to think about and then just the um something that we talked about quite a bit when we were there too is just the um the affordability for um you know not those that are are coming as as retirees and can't afford the the higher end but what about the the kids and the young professionals and you know any you know, divorced, you know, divorced uh, folks or anything like that. And that, I, I know we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, affordable housing in, in that, um, in that respect. But, you know, so, so talk a little bit about, um, we're going to get in a second to how we met and, and what, what you were, um, you know, what you were working on with the grant and some education there, but talk about, you know, when you landed there, what was, what was, how do you, <laughs> How do you digest that situation compared to where Pittsburgh, where you came from? I mean, those are two different housing. You're talking about Section 8, you know, in Pittsburgh, and then you come to Chafee and it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, it's they are, um, you know, if you think about a spectrum of 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 realities, they're they're on very different ends of that spectrum. Um, Pittsburgh, Kansas, again, was um, it's 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 in southeast Kansas and it's home to a university. It also was um, back in the day, the largest producer of coal for World War II. So during that time, there was over 100,000 people in that region. There was train systems connecting all of the towns, et cetera. When the coal minings went bust, the town, you know, typical to like uh, coal mining in Appalachia, right? Mm -hmm. It fell into an economic depression and it's been taking generations to get out of it. So in Pittsburgh, Kansas, housing was incredibly affordable. Um, I just described uh, a, a friend selling her house, uh, a 1920s craftsman, um, three bedrooms, two and a half bath, beautiful original woodwork on almost a quarter of an acre, and it's less than $100,000. Um, so uh, rents in, in Pittsburgh, um, it was very easy to operate a Section 8 program because HUD's fair market rent was usually about two to $300 more than what the private market could bring. So... Um, Totally different environment. The, the concern <laughs> there um, in terms of, of housing is there wasn't housing quality that the young professionals who could afford the $150,000 house, $200,000, $250,000 house, there was no stock of that. Um, and so that's why we implemented things like the Rural Housing Incentive District, uh, et cetera, so that we could attract um, developers and builders that would build into that market piece. Um, we did some studies that demonstrated um, employees that worked within Pittsburgh 
um, were driving from great distances where they could buy those kind of houses, but there wasn't anything to buy in Pittsburgh. So most of my work there was about uh, improving the quality of the housing stock and the quality of the property management of the existing stock. <laughs> right, right. Okay, and, so so Chafee, so you yes. come there. So then I come and, here. I mean, you're familiar you're familiar with it because you you kind of grew up there. Sure. Um, but I'm sure as you dig into the details of your um, your role there as the the housing director for the county, which you were just telling me before we started recording that you're about to establish a housing authority there, um, which will be cool. But um, you're uh, you're thrown in that situation, or not really thrown in. You you accepted the job. Um, you know what what um, what what did you see as the the initial things you needed to to get to work on? Yeah, yeah. The um, well, of course, you know, developing relationships is the key, right? To to getting most everything done is building a network. So that was that was task number one is figuring out who all the players were and establishing some uh, relationships that were symbiotic. But in terms of of um, tools in the toolbox to create affordable housing, I left them all. It seems in Kansas. Um, <laughs> The, the tax laws in Colorado are very dramatically different, and I didn't expect it. I didn't know it. I should have done my own research, um, but I'm up for a challenge, so game on. There's there's two. One is called TABOR, the tax, I think it's called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, and it basically just means we cannot um, increase any taxes without a vote of the public. So even if you want to increase a mill levy, it has to go to the vote of the public. So that's always a barrier. Um, in a state that prefers no property taxes. And then there's another part of that um, referred to as the Gallagher Amendment. And that means that the total, and, and please forgive me, this is very rudimentary and I'll get a lot wrong, but the basic gist of it is the total amount of property taxes that is are collected has a certain percentage that has to be commercial. And residential cannot exceed the commercial amount. And so what that means is that our business community is paying um, property taxes incredibly more elevated than our residential community. The other thing I was not aware of when I took the position, and we're going to roll with it, is that some of our communities have no property tax at all. They rely mm -hmm. on sales tax. Um, so when COVID hit, uh, really shined a light on that model. And yeah. it, it informed the decision about what, how quickly we needed to, you know, quote unquote, reopen, um, because that definitely, um, it definitely hit. I, I was going to ask you about that, because, you know, here, here in Texas, um, we've got, I mean, we are a property tax state, but we've got a range of communities that, you know, some of them are very dependent on sales tax. Um, there are a few communities that that have no property tax. They're complete, you know, complete sales tax communities. And then you have some that are um, that have hardly any sales tax at all, um, you know, and, and and are more resilient, I guess, in that way. And and they are dependent and their budgets are set more on on property tax. So I was curious when COVID hit, uh, you know, to see how that structure would impact the decision on how fast to open. Yeah. Um, and it's not surprising that the communities that were more reliant or more dependent on sales tax were quicker, sure. you know, to, um, to open. But, um, you know, as, 
as kind of our our core argument for for our firm and the work that we do is is a more resilient pattern is to you know to get more of your base services from property tax and then so that you can have sales tax for you know for other uh, you know economic development quality of life needs um, at least in property tax states but right. so um, so talk uh, talk about the education efforts I guess the let's start with the grant. Um, you were you were looking to educate in your community. Uh, you built those relationships. You got that started, and then you said, "I got to do a lot of education <laughs> here." Right. Um, and you were putting together, or you—I guess you got a grant. That's right. And then that's how we met. So talk about that education first. Of like, where where did you get this idea to do what I think is a, a very um, kind of robust and um, diverse education effort. Like I, I, I don't hear a lot of folks in housing talking yeah. about the, the breadth of education that, you know, the way that you approached it when, when we first talked. So what were you yeah. trying to get, what were you trying to get done with that and talk a little bit about the, the grant and then we'll go, go, sure. uh, go from there. Sure. I think first I want to um, remind you, I, I mentioned when I was working in um, Oklahoma in Tulsa that my involvement was in research grants. So I always have that research lens, right, through right. the work that I'm doing. Um, I, I want to know if it's measurable and I want to know if there's impact. And if there is, can we replicate it? So that's always kind of at the base of my thinking. Um, one, of the, um, one of the policy structures that I look at when I think about... When I wow. think about affordable housing is uh, where can we build it, right? We need to build it where there's already infrastructure and we need to build it where we can build it um, in a quantity that makes the performance work. And when I started looking at the zoning and land maps in Chafee County and the infrastructure maps, if I could find them in Chafee County, um, what became apparent is that um, Chase, Chafee County is getting exactly what we are legislated to get. There are two acre lots being subdivided with half million dollar homes on wells and septics going in at an alarming rate because that's the very easiest thing to build. Uh -huh. no funny, how, funny how that works, right? Yeah, you get what whatever's you whatever's easiest to build. That's what they're going to, that's what they're going to crank out. Yep. That's right. You get what you ask for. And so when I started talking, you know, the housing director comes in and starts talking about land use and zoning and codes. Um, I had a lot of funny looks and when I started making the connection between how housing is built affordably and land use, um, you could see that uh, it, broadly across the community, that connection hadn't been made frequently. So at, the, at, at that time that I was coming to realize like we're gonna need to change our underlying policy, um, my dear colleague, who's the director of public health, Andrea Karlstrom, she um, forwarded me an email saying, hey, here's a grant opportunity that might intersect with housing and you might want to look at it. So this grant opportunity came from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment through their Office of Health Equity, and it is called the Health Disparities Grant Program. And the goal of the program is to address in the world of public health, what they refer to as the upstream social determinants of health, and therefore improve long-term health outcomes of the population in your county. So if we think about what those upstream social determinants are in Chafee County, um, largely it's access to housing. Where do you live? 
and where do you live um where where people live also influences how they access food education healthcare it also access it also impacts their um social capital how how they have friends and networks around them etc and when i started digging into the data um what i learned is that within our little county which is a valley we're surrounded by mountains um we have um according to the us census's on the map tool which documents mm-hmm. commuting patterns um over 60% of people who work in Chafee County commute to do so. Now, I I want to add a little asterisk or a footnote to that because um, I believe that that data includes telecommuters, so people who live and are working here on their laptops. Like where, yeah, where would they commute from? Because yeah. like I said earlier, it's not the easiest place to get to. It's not, no. Um so I think those telecommuters, we could say, are the ones associated with Denver, because that was okay. a big portion of them. Colorado Springs is about two hours away um, over Trout Creek Pass. And um, uh, in Buena Vista, right outside of Buena Vista, we have a Department of Correction prison facility. And the bulk of the guards there commute from that highway 24 that goes down into Colorado Springs. So they'll come up and stay for four days working and then go back to the Springs where they can afford housing and be with their family. Um, In addition, there's a highway 50 on the South end of the Valley goes down into Canyon city and Pueblo. And along the way, there's lots of small towns that are a little bit more affordable, right? Because they don't have the services Uh or the amenities. Um, And so there's a lot of people commuting from there. There's a uh, pass going out of the south end of the valley called Poncha Pass that goes into the San Luis Valley, which is um, one of the most magical places on earth, but it is also one of the most economic depressed places in Colorado. And so, and the county immediately adjacent to us has no building codes. So it's easy to go over that pass and build whatever to live in. Um, and then commute over here to work every day. And it's one of the easier passes in Colorado. So people do it year round. Um, in addition, if you go out the west side, there's a Monarch Pass into Gunnison County. And we have quite a few people commuting from Gunnison County into the county, uh, into Chafee okay. every day as well. Yeah, so those those long commute times, substandard housing, overcrowded housing. Um, many people who work are entry wage jobs, um, pre- predominantly the river raft guides and the ski instructors, they live in their cars um, or in their tents on either public or private land. Um, So if you look at those as social determinants of health, um, we can tie them to um, um, detrimental health outcomes in the long run. And so the grant that we applied for, we said that we wanted to increase our community's capacity to understand land use strategies in a way that would improve those social determinants of health and then therefore um, improve health outcomes. And so uh, we were awarded, super exciting, uh, about $250,000. And what we proposed to do with that is host um, community educational events where we collected survey feedback from the community members that participated. And then we would analyze that community feedback and put it into a final report that would go back to all the planning commissions within our communities um, to inform their land use decisions in the long run. 
And so how did that, uh, I don't even remember at this point cause it's yeah. been, it's been a little while, but, um, I remember getting, uh, getting an email from you and, uh, maybe it was a phone call. I don't, yeah. I don't remember, but, um, you, uh, yeah. Yeah. We started, um, we really wanted this to be a, a grassroots campaign, right? For, so public health really believes in, um, community involvement and community engagement and, um, that our legislation should come from the people. And so, yeah. Yeah, you, and I guess what I was going to ask is you, um, I mean, you outlined, you had a series of topics that you wanted to hit with that that grant. I think there were four or six or nine. eight of them. Nine, I was, yeah. <laughs> um, and then at the end of it, you were going to pull that all together into the report. And we're right about the time you were, you were going to have that kind of grand That's finale right. event, right? That's right. Um, so, what, so what we did to start is um, put together a list of land use topics that came from um, a state guidebook on affordable housing came from a housing needs assessment, came from uh, my office of housing strategic plan and submitted a co community survey out into the wild. Um, we had close to 2% of our population respond, which is pretty significant for, for this kind of effort and um, ranked all of those different land use topics. Then I convened a group of planners. So all of the paid professional planners in our community as well as our um, director of economic development and the director of a very significant conservation effort we refer to as Envision Chafee County, but it's really about um, wild land management and conservation. So we convened that group and had them rank and prioritize the land use topics based on the community's feedback and narrowed it down to nine. Um, <laughs> so, it, and then with each of those nine, I was tasked with finding subject matter experts. Um, and so I think I reached out to you um, for fiscal impact of different development mm -hmm. patterns. And then also one of the topics was incremental development. And um, when we were talking, you said, I think I know somebody that can help with incremental development as well. Um, so that's how we met, and um, you and Monty um, Anderson came out and had a wonderful visit to Chafee County before we had to quit traveling and doing things. Yeah, that was the that was a great trip. had a We had a lot of fun and talked with a lot of a lot of good people. But um, talk, uh, tell me about just the specifics of that. We were there. We were there for two days. Yeah. Um, you, you lined up a kind of a whirlwind of, um, we hit all three cities. We, we did some stuff in the evening. We had some meetings with some property owners, but, um, you know, talk about your perspective of that, of like what you were hoping to get out of it, what, um, what you and the community learned when we were there. And, and then I definitely, you know, like to hear what happened, uh, what happened after we left. Awesome. No, that's the fun part. Really, um, your, your, you and Monty, your visit was kind of the, perfect execution of what I had envisioned with this grant, right? You showed up and I think we first went on a tour of the community so I could kind of point out different development patterns that we're seeing. Um, I'm going to get these things out of order, but uh, you, you both agreed to interview with our wonderful local radio station, KHEN, mm -hmm. that keeps that interview on the Chafee Housing Report podcast. So that's a tool that we can use and we are using to push out um, as an evergreen engagement opportunity to keep our community members hearing these conversations over and over again. Um, you had one 
a super fun event in Salida at the Steam Plant Event Center, which is a, a really great example of repurposing a, a literal. Yeah, that was a great venue. Yeah. Uh, into a wonderful theater and community gathering space. And um, and we had live question and answer sessions with audience members there. And then, of course, they filled out the um, the data survey at the end. I think we also went to um, Buena Vista and engaged that community over lasagna, if I remember correctly, <laughs> everybody good food um, and had a good conversation up there. I think we had a, a daytime event um, with a community foundation that's also interested in helping our, our Chapey County Community Foundation is playing a, a, a very big role in helping um facilitate the design of, and I'm guessing potentially fund small incremental development opportunities. Was that, um, was that the one where we had um, some of the different, like the planners and engineers, the guys from the Crabtree group were there. Is that the one I'm thinking of? That, that, was, a different that one? was another one. Yeah. You guys, I think did four <laughs> events with us. that was a different one where those guys were asking some um, pretty good questions. And I'm really just so pleased that, Specifically, that group, Crabtree Engineering, um, has played a big role in these conversations, um, mm -hmm. really listening in hard and weighing in hard. And um, I really appreciate it because they're, they're behind a lot of the development in our community. Um, yep. Yeah. So I think that was us in a whirlwind. We had a good time. <laughs> we did. And it snowed. It snowed it's, a lot. It did snow. I think you threw a <laughs> snowball at me. <laughs> I, I did. I have, a, I have a picture of it. But I remember... Uh, I remember that first night we were there, I woke up the next morning and there was like 18 inches of snow on the ground. And I took, uh, took pictures and sent it to my daughter and she, she's never seen snow like that, except when we've gone skiing, you know, so, uh, that was, it was pretty cool, but it was, um, it was, it was gorgeous, but, um, but yeah, I, one of the things, uh, that I really liked was that we, we were able to, um, the first night that we were there, there are a few people that were at that that were either landowners or a couple of folks that were interested in doing some small development. Um, you know, and we had the usual conversations about land use and fiscal sustainability and the, the fiscal impacts of different patterns and and the infrastructure funding gap that I love to geek out on. Um, you know, and and I had some kind of off to the side conversations with some of the city folks on you know on those topics, but um, but we also we had a, a few folks there that first night that were. Um, you know, that were landowners, developers, and we were able to, you know, we pulled out a map, a, co a couple of people had brought their rolls of plans, their site plans with them. Right. <laughs> and, you know, we rolled those out and, you know, Monty and I were looking at them together. And then the, the following day, we went out and met them on site and kind of kicked around some different, different ideas. And, you know, I believe two, two of those different projects that we talked about are now actually happening. Well, so, one of, or at one least, of at least one of them. Yeah. Yeah, one of them is, and I think um, the other that I'm working on was very much informed and influenced by that that evening in particular. Um, the one that is that is um, literally, uh, you remember Bonnie holding up her piece of paper and saying, "I have <laughs> land. Who wants to?" And she um, has has joined myself and the director of our community foundation, along with a local architect who's doing the work pro bono. Um, has designed on this uh, city lot, which is in the commercial uh, zone, which is great because we have a lot more flexibility. Um, three different buildings, 
Two of them are fourplexes that contain um, one modest, modest size, one bedroom units. So eight of those. Um, one of the building contains an office for property management, and it contains a coin-op laundry for the whole development. And then there are four uh, very modest studios. I say very modest. I'm talking between four to 600 square feet um, studios in that building. And then the the final portion of that building includes, um, we're, I'm, I'm going to start calling them four four-bedroom connected homes. We started off with dormitories. And what we learned is that if we call it a dormitory, even in the commercial zone, we are subject to a limited impact review. So uh, our costs would increase. So I'm calling them four four bedroom units, and they're all interconnected. There's you know <laughs> fire firewall locking doors in between. So if you want to um, open them up and have uh, two kitchens and eight bedrooms, you can do so. The reason that we need that, I mentioned before, um, we have people living in cars. Uh, people that are running our restaurants and our coffee houses are living in their Winnebago's. And many of them said that they would, in, in fact, one of our council persons owns a hostel and he has people saying, may I rent that hostel bunk bed, the, the bottom bunk of that for the yeah. month. And he can't do that because that's not his business model. But um, if we can create a, a flexible housing option space like that, where a person could rent a bunk or a room, a bedroom, um, until they become a, a little bit more established, they could step up into one of those studios, perhaps one of the one bedrooms. Um, so what we're trying to create is a small continuum of housing in that location. Um, the final building on that property um, is on the corner. And I, again, I said it's in a commercial lot. So the downstairs we envision as a nonprofit development center that could possibly be the home of the Chafee Housing Authority that's about to become, as well as the um, Chafee County Community Foundation who at the crux of their mission has nonprofit development as, as a, a focal point. So above that space then is two more one bedrooms and another studio. Um, we've gone through uh, pre-development conversations with the city and um, have adjusted uh, you know, the way we're kind of approaching this to make sure that we don't have to um, spend too much development money up front um, the Community Foundation and I wrote a grant to the Colorado Health Foundation, and we received pre-development grant funds so that we can go through the engineering piece and um, get through the entitlement process, et cetera. Uh, I have two foundations that have already earmarked um, grants for the creation of the housing, and then we've been working with the Colorado um, Department of Local Affairs Division of Housing that also contributes funds to um, affordable housing projects. It looks like our rents are going to get down to as low as um, affordable to 30% of the area median income. And then, you know, we envision some of the large. So, what, so just, just for, for uh, 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 what is what that number? Like what's yeah. that rent? Yeah. The, so a 30% rent um, for uh, say one of the studios is at $375. A typical studio here in Salida can bring up to 900 easy. Mm -hmm. So it cuts it, cuts it steeply, but that's also a uh, 30% of our area median income is at $15,000. Um, 100%. So our area median income stat is $50,000, but that's, it's a bit of a misnomer. So when you start really digging into the data from our economic sources, like the Bureau of Labor Statistics and Colorado Workforce, 
the majority of our workforce earns less than 25,000. So when I started digging into the definitions of AMI, what I learned is that passive income is also counted in area median income. So you remember the retirees moving here mm-hmm. um, between 2018 and 2019, there was over $60 million of private deposit money in our local bank from that population moving in. So all that passive income elevates the AMI to a point that is completely out of whack with what our actual wages are. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for starting the conversation <laughs> in Salida because um, it's uh, it's looking like we're coming in the right direction. Our next step is to have a um, to enter into a contract with the property owner. So we've evaluated whether it would be more beneficial for us to receive a donation, purchase it with a discount, purchase it at market rate, or or do a, a long term ground lease. And uh, that conversation is going to happen next week. Okay, so. So talk about the rest of the grant. I know you had, we were one of the first groups to come in and talk. You had another, you know, another few folks come in did. and then, um, you know, and then you were going to roll all this stuff up into kind of the, the grand event. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I, I knew you had some, um, I knew you had some momentum kind of going with the, on the development side and a couple of those projects, but what have, what, I think there was a comprehensive planning effort happening at the time mm-hmm. too, right? That's so did any of, so did any of these ideas make it, have they filtered into the individual cities and their policy and their plans yet? Or are they still waiting for your kind of grand grant wrap up reveal? That's right. Um, I think that, hmm, that's a good question. I think that the concepts, the ideas, the conversation and the um, increase in understanding has filtered into everybody's conversations. Um now, has it filtered into policy? Not yet, right? That's a little <laughs> bit harder. Um, but you are correct in the, the county, the unincorporated Chafee County was going through a comprehensive plan update at the same time as this housing and health speaker series was going on. And um, the, the comprehensive plan is now at the point where there is a, a, a draft that the um, planning and zoning commission and some staff members, including myself, are able to comment and correct. It's going to go back out to the community, um, at which time we will contact everybody that joined us in the speaker series and ask them to participate in those conversations. Um, And the recommendations that have have ultimately come to be because of this grant, um, we're advocating that they they show up in the grant. So some of the topics we covered included, um, like we had uh, uh, Mr. Marone from Strong Chowns here, Mm to kind of talk broadly about that. We, we had um, Opticos Design, uh, Drew Finke, come talk about missing middle housing and how that works, um, incremental development and infrastructure. Um, we talked a little bit about different zoning models and how um, the Euclidean zoning model that we are all operating under is not the only one that's available to us. In fact, the town of Poncha Springs adopted transect zoning uh, I think in 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. and has seen um, a, a huge change in their development pattern for the positive. Um, and then another one topic that we talked about that really isn't related to land use, but I love it, was uh, entrepreneurial thinking and small business startup. Um, because one of the constraints that we have on our market here is uh, contractors and businesses that build housing. 
um, many of them come from two, three hours away. Um, so we have a lot of opportunity here for economic development as we do this. Yeah, that's another one that you had mentioned that, that I had commented on that you were connecting some dots that you don't typically see. And that's something that, that Monty and I talked a lot about is, you know, you have the infrastructure resource finance gap. You have the land use and the, the development pattern that impacts that. You've got incremental development. But then you also have this idea of cultivating a, the local the local workforce and the local yeah. you know small business owners. And so we, um, you know, Monty and I have both touched in, you know, a, a model to to kind of connect the the small development with those local entrepreneurs and and maybe even the local school district to start to train some of those folks to, you know, maybe they don't want to go off to the four year degree, but they want to start their own carpenter business or electrician or, or whatever. And so how can we connect those resources together to um, to also provide workforce to build, um, you know, these uh, the smaller housing that the big developers just won't, you know, they won't they won't touch. So that was really exciting to me that you were um, that you were covering that topic, too. And and part of why I wanted to see how this all comes together, because I, I think at least when you went after the grant and we were first you know, talking early in the process, it, you you seem to be connecting a lot of the dots together that that ultimately make, you know, sustainable, self-sustaining, yeah. healthy, equitable places. Um, and you were tying it all up under this bow of community health, which yeah. was I mean, I had never thought of it that way. But but now more and more, I, I, I have been asked to, to talk at, at more kind of healthy community conferences that sure. most of it, it's, it, it is about community health and kind of af- active living and all that. But but housing and, you know, the affordability aspect of, you know, what do you have to pay in property taxes and what kind of, you know, active living does your neighborhood allow you to, you know, to have? Um, sure. It's all, you know, it's all related. So. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for, for listeners that on, on here that are looking for ways to get some of these conversations started, um, you know, those healthy community grants and those healthy community foundations are maybe a, you know, a source that not everybody thinks about when you want to talk land use and infrastructure and incremental development. Yeah, you know, if you think, um, if you go back to uh, human behavior and psychology 101 and think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Um, safety and security is the bottom rung, right? And that's where housing is. So if we don't have safe, stable, affordable, accessible housing, we cannot collectively realize our own potential as a community. So it really all starts with that very basic need of are we safe and are we stable? And are we living in a car? Do we have to drive over a mountain pass with 18 inches of snow? Um, (laughs) Those kind of things really, you know, really weigh in. So, you know, you, you mentioned the connection between economic development and housing. And one thing, um, you know, well, there's so many things about 2020. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of my greatest disappointments, um, just after the fact that there's a pandemic, is that uh, an, an event that wasn't part of the original grant but has come out of the speaker series had to be canceled. Um, and I hope that that once we're able to reconvene, people will will resurrect it. But a, a brief description of it is um, I was starting to collect uh, after your visit um, several different incremental development activities, not my own, 
but I was helping facilitate the conversation between the people with the ideas or the land or the money and the, um, and the regulatory bodies that can make or break them. And um, we were convening what first started out call, uh, we, we started calling it get shit done. And then it turned into access to capital um, <laughs> because it seemed more appropriate. And it was turning into a statewide convening as opposed to just a Chafee County convening. So we had the executive director of our Department of Local Affairs um, of the Colorado Housing Finance Authority. They were all going to come of the Office of um, Economic and I'm not going to remember it. It's O-Edit, Economic Development, essentially, at the state level. Going to come, I had... Um, uh, our economic development director had reached out to other investors like venture capitalists and impact investors. And we were really going to do kind of uh, what somebody told me would be called a shark tank, where you stand up and give your pitch for your small development idea in front of a room full of funders and mm -hmm. see how many we could get funded. And unfortunately, that didn't get to happen because um, we can't get together. Uh, but I do think we'll resurrect the idea. Are my partners in that were... Um, the, the Chapey County Economic Development Corporation and our region's small business development center. And um, then we had several different uh, funders and lenders that were involved and, and excited to kick that off too. So we'll bring that back and I'll, I'll maybe follow up in a year or so and let you know how our, <laughs> our Get Shit Done conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so what, um, I, I want to kind of wrap us up here, but maybe what um, what are the next steps with, with where you're you're at, I know. Well, you just kind of touched on some of it with COVID. You've had to put some of that on on hold. But mm -hmm. um, you know, where it, compare where you are right now to where you were before you started that that speaker series, and and we came uh, out there in terms of you know your your overall goals of education. Yeah, yeah. Let's just focus in on that because as as an office of housing, I've got many tentacles. But let's just keep talking about this grant and education mm -hmm. capacity building tentacle. Um, I just submitted the final report to our grant manager. So it's about to go public. It's about to get announced publicly. And what our data shows is that we did increase um, our community's capacity of understanding land use topics by 48%, which is pretty significant. Um, we asked everybody about their... Um, we asked them to use a Likert scale from one to five, with five being the highest, on how important it was for them to have local policies and systems that do two things. One, support small scale housing development, and two, support small business development or expansion. And the response to that was overwhelmingly positive. Um, of course, we all want to see the small scale housing development and small scale um, small-scale business development. And so the policy recommendations that we came up with, and remember that I'm a county employee. So mm -hmm. while we have three municipalities, this report is going to an unincorporated county that's getting chopped up in two-acre lots. And so the number one recommendation was to adopt um, a conservation subdivision design strategy we had uh, Randall Arndt here from Greener Prospects to talk about conservation. Actually, he, he came back twice afterwards. So we had him for a total of three different engagements. Um, so that's the number one recommendation. Um, and that dovetails really well. You remember the core team that I mentioned in the beginning included Envision Chapey County that had a strong conservation and land mm -hmm. management approach. They've done a lot of work 
with GIS to map out like where our um, where our wildlife corridors are, where our our public lands need fire mitigation so that we can help protect residents um, and help prevent uh, landslides when the monsoons come, um, and and more. And so next year's grant, uh, which we've already been awarded another couple hundred thousand dollars, pretty exciting, uh, has money set aside to add GIS layers that will focus on that conservation subdivision design. And then to tie it back into health, Kevin, we are also going to add GIS layers of public health data so that over the next mm-hmm. five, 10 years, we can track that and say that you know the policy decisions we made in 2020, 2021 follow that out for five or six years, and we should see more housing stability. We should see a decrease in, you know, certain health indicators and an increase in other health indicators. Um, So that's kind of a fun way to put it together. Another recommendation is that we need enough land zoned for um, all housing types. So rather than, you know, residential single family zoning, we needed to be able to see um, all of the uh, the whole continuum of housing so that we can embrace that missing, missing middle. Um, we also adopted your language. A recommendation is to increase the intensity of use in our commercial areas. So yep. not necessarily the density, but we want to allow for more business development, more mixed use opportunities. If somebody has a shop out front that has no harmful toxins or dangerous... <laughs> equipment, it's okay for them to live in the back, right? It's not, it's not going to hurt anybody. So, um, so that's a recommendation. And then the last two, um, one is to reduce the administrative and the regulatory barriers to incremental development. I, a good example, I described, and you're, you're more than familiar with this, but in Salida, I described the potential for developing 19 housing units, um, four of which were dormitories, which caused a limited impact review. If I was building short-term rentals, I could do that by right without mm-hmm. any review. So we need, to, we need to adjust those kind of policies to make sure that we're getting the right kind of development. And then the, the last piece, because this is recommendations to unincorporated Chafee County, where the multi-million dollar homes are going in, where on average, I, our, our realtors just put out their quarterly report and our average sales price is 520 some thousand. That's the average sales price. Mm-hmm. So the last recommendation is to adopt a countywide inclusionary housing ordinance and refer back to the housing needs assessment for what those production goals should be so that they can float over time. And as we diversify our stock enough that everybody can afford to f- and able to find a place to live here, the, that ordinance may mandate that there's nothing built other than market rate, right? But it needs to float over time. Um, and to attach to that a fee in lieu, uh, because, uh, you know, out on the side of a mountain isn't necessarily the best place for affordable housing. But if there was a fee then that the developer could pay to the housing authority instead, we could concentrate on those um, it, smaller projects and infill projects and uh, higher intensity projects. That's the summation of the recommendations. And we'll see what happens in the, in the time to come. Well, yeah, Becky, I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad we were able to reconnect. Um, it was really cool to hear an update of what just everything you guys have going on. Um, sounds like you've made a lot of progress and are getting some of those dots connected. 
Um, and it was, I know, man, when we were out there, we kept saying, we want to come back, we want to go skiing, <laughs> but, but we were hoping to at least get back for, uh, you know, for the wrap up event that you had. So hopefully we'll be able to, to do that in some way when you, um, kind of put a bow on this, this whole effort, but maybe let's, let's wrap with, with, if you have, um, if you have a couple maybe points of advice for other people that are doing housing in any capacity, um, something that you've learned from this whole exercise of the grant writing, um, the workshops, the the execution of ideas after after the workshops, anything, any advice you'd have? Oh, wow. Um, I think first and foremost, listening to the community is, is, is at the crux of it. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a couple of ways to make housing affordable in a market like Chafee County's. One is subsidizing rent and the other is subsidizing builds. The conversation around subsidizing rent gets very tricky then because you're paying rent for somebody and you get NIMBY um, pushback on that. And, and a lot of federal programs have uh, an income guideline that cuts a person off if they start earning more than what qualifies them. So there's disincentive to um, improve your individual earning power if you're getting the rental subsidies. And so therefore, if you think about long-term affordability, subsidizing the build of a house or of multiple housing makes a lot more sense. But I wish there was a better word than subsidize because that immediately triggers financial contribution. And the contribution that is more equitable and sustainable from my perspective is a contribution to the policies that are underlying how those builds are executed. So I said to um, a commissioner the other day, a, a planning commissioner the other day, that if I had property, which, which is going to be very hard to afford here in Chaffee County, <laughs> if I had property... I would put an RFP out that would be very prescriptive about what kind of housing I wanted built on this property. And I would find a developer that would gladly do it. I don't have property, but the people collectively own our policies and systems. And so we can be prescriptive in our policies and systems about what we want developed. And, and that is a, a little bit of a brain shift and a little bit of a shift in conversation. Um, but I think through enough conversation and through bringing in subject matter experts like yourself and Monty and um, Randall and Chuck and all the people that, that we've met over the last year, um, we've been able to change the conversation a little bit in, in terms of we are in control of our policies and systems and we can design them in a manner that will benefit our community in the long run. And also they're living. So if we try something now and five years from now, we're not getting the impact and the effect that we want, we can tweak it a little bit, right? Yep. They're, they're living documents and they, they require community input and community investment. So I think that would be the, the biggest thing is to, to listen to what the community wants and then, and then, use the ownership that we have, which is our policies and our systems to, to get what we want and what we need really um, instead of whatever else has been legislated for. That is a perfect way to wrap it up. 
Awesome. <laughs> well, Becky, it was good seeing you and talking to you and catching up. I'm glad we could get you on here. I know you've uh, you've been a listener of the podcast for for a while, and I do think that that um the radio interview you referenced earlier we we put that out on our podcast a while back too that. Great. Some some longtime listeners may may recognize your voice from from that one. So it was good to get you on and, and catch up and let's uh, keep in touch. Okay. Oh, absolutely, Kevin. I think that I intend to be your friend for a long time. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to, to, t- to fill you in on what's happened since you left. Well, I appreciate it. You stay well. All right. You do the same. Be well. Friend. Take care. <laughs>